Before we get into the episode, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor, MySalesCoach.com. Are you an early stage SaaS founder juggling business development, feeling the strain of cold outreach or the pressure of supporting your sales team? Well, you're not alone. My Sales Coach understands that training lays the groundwork, but it's consistent, personalized coaching that truly amplifies sales performance and revenue. My Sales Coach helps founders and sales professionals, regardless of their experience level, achieve their true potential through expert, personalized sales coaching tailored to your schedule and your needs. Discover more at mysalescoach.com forward slash Matt. That's mysalescoach.com forward slash Matt. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to On Demand, where startup B2B SaaS companies come to grow. When it comes to demand generation, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why we created this podcast, to help founders and marketers like you unlock a combination that's right for your business. Let's get into it. Rick Charnley, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm great, Matt. And thanks for inviting me on. Good to meet. Good to chat. Excellent. Let's get straight into it. Coming to you from a very loud SaaS stock in Dublin. Obviously, a lot of chatter here about certain topics around AI, market conditions, things that I'd really like to chat with you about. Before we get into all of that, would you want to just kick off and just give us a brief introduction to yourself? Rick Charnley. Uh, I'm an investment director at Northstar Ventures. So we're regionally based, early stage venture capital firm. So we've been around about 20 years investing in uh, the Northeast ecosystem. So our Northeast is predominantly kind of Newcastle, Durham, Northumberland, and kind of a bit of Teesside. We were initially kind of created to establish a venture capital ecosystem in the Northeast. We kind of did that over the first kind of 10 years. And then since about 2015, when we did a, an MBO, we've been focusing more on, okay, how do we look at the kind of strengths in region, double down on them, and look at kind of creating, I suppose, elements or of excellence really or, or build around the natural ecosystem that's formed in certain areas like electrification with nissan which then lends itself to kind of renewables and offshore wind farm things like kind of healthy aging with national innovation aging and then in, in terms of lifelong learning with a lot of the universities and specifically around kind of like sunderland northumbria where they've kind of been strong and then we've also been looking at okay well Newcastle as a, as a place, as a city, is actually really interesting one for companies to kind of launch into because it's quite isolated but equally quite large. So it's quite a good one to actually have a test. So we've got this whole thing around kind of digital construction and future of place as well. So as an entity and as with Northstar, we're doubling down on these areas and around the universities as well and what strengths they have and, and to pull people in region, keeping region then grow from so i think as a kind of a as a firm as the kind of individual really kind of passionate about growing and establishing companies in in, in the northeast and, and trying to help them expand beyond and become kind of global in in nature and, and recognize where they can be globally renowned in, in certain areas my personal background so i i came up to the northeast probably about 20 years ago as well, back in 2004, to do a, a master degree at Newcastle. Came out of there in the height of recession to kind of 2007, 2008. 
end up working for a kind of a local company in debt investment. So I did that for kind of five years and did some accountancy qualification whilst doing there. And then I was fortunate enough to land a job at, at Northstar. They kind of, I suppose, took a bit of a, a risk on me in the fact that it was coming from a bit more of a traditional background, not necessarily an entrepreneurial or, or one or a venture back one. Yeah, I've been been there ever since. And, and during that time, I've had quite a, quite a journey, really. We've been involved in establishing a couple of national funds, deployed probably in the region of about 60 million, not personally, but just as a firm during that time, been involved in some really interesting companies along the way as well. And also a lot of unsuccessful ones as well, unfortunately. So I've, I've had my fair share of, of knockbacks too. Excellent. So I, I want to get into that in more detail for, further down the line. In particular, though, what sort of stage does Northstar typically get involved with startups? What's the stage that, that Northstar typically engage would probably class it as kind of the seed pre-seed, but it's post post product, can be pre-market. Ideally, if we're going into that, we're looking at, okay, well, what effort has been done to establish that there is a market for the for the product? You know, what what is in place there? I th- I think given the ability to create demand now with the ability to build a wide frame of a product or an MVP relatively cheaply, easily, in some ways, it's really looking, okay, well. How many conversations have you had with customers? What does that feedback look like? How have you kind of proven an element of, of kind of demand for this before we'll, we'll really get involved? But we're happy to get involved at, at kind of that stage or, or have been. And with that, we, we do a lot of kind of university spin outs, what it is. The IP has been developed, the business plan, the kind of the concept. They've had those early discussions, but they haven't got the first customers. A lot of the time, they still need to then go and build the actual proper product before they can actually launch it. And we're, we're comfortable with that. I say it does, does depend on the on the business as well. If it was particularly, you know, a SaaS business and such, we probably would be looking for a couple of customers or at least the early customer, you know, the one that is alongside it because it is a bit easier. It, it's a lower bar now to be able to actually build that first. And so in terms of amounts, we typically have invested anything between kind of 200 to 500 in the first instance, have done lower, have done higher, but that usually means round sizes of probably lower end 300 up to about one, one and a half, two. And then we, we typically follow more than once into the business as well. And we're not averse to, I suppose, following to companies where a lot of the time you've got a business plan and milestones that you want to hit on that first, that first check. We're quite experienced investors in knowing that things take a bit longer, cost a bit more, and you don't always hit everything. I think what we're looking at is, is there enough of a movement towards, and we, we often kind of have a lot of discussion around that kind of second second investment, whether we should or shouldn't, but it's not going to be the case that, you know, you said you're going to do 10 things, you've done nine, you're not going to get funded because you've not done that 10th. You know, we're, we're very much open to that. So we do typically do the second on that basis as well so we have about 20 to 25 core portfolio in our current fund that we've invested in the region of about a million into fantastic that sets a useful context for everybody i think to understand where you're coming from let's zoom out a little bit obviously this morning linkedin announced more layoffs a lot of chatter certainly here at sas stock around the general market conditions out there how do you see the market conditions and, and what's the impact for both an investor side and, and startup side? Market condition-wise is an interesting one. I, I think at the pre-seed seed, there are funds, but they're harder to come by and they're getting more and more focused on, okay, the, the strength of the team, 
been round before. Is it your second second startup, third? Or are you part of the fang? You know, if you if you've been through that and you kind of experience, or you're coming through other areas that they kind of kind of like. So I think it's it's hard, and we 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 see that. So I think it's getting more and more where angels are coming through, and I think you see a lot of angels stepping into that mode. You've got likes of kind of Odin, who I'm a big kind of fan of in terms of trying to democratize that access to kind of VC for people, probably both sides, and building your own network around the funding round as well and leveraging that. And I think, I suppose, a lot of founders are probably switching on to the fact that if you can bring on board 10 angels on that first first round that all add their own value, it can be actually stronger than bringing one VC and can be easier in some ways in terms of getting them to write the check. So I'd say market-wise, it is tougher for venture funding, for VC funding, and you're seeing them kind of go up the chain equally what you are seeing is there's some US funds coming in, especially to Europe, and they're looking at, okay, the ones that and taking a bit more risk on probably arguably, but in particular areas. So obviously like AI at the moment, if you're doing the right thing in, in AI and you're kind of probably got the right CV behind you, then you're probably going to get funded by potentially top tier VC and you probably find it easier to, to do that than you would have done 12, 18, two months ago. I think if you're in SaaS particularly, it's harder to get a pre-seed and seed check without probably the seed side, you need to be doing 20K a month, that type of level. I think pre-seed, it's probably going to come down to the team and whether you've got an area of niche, you've got a pain, you're scratching your own itch in a certain area that they're, they're able to, to go into. And so we are finding that that kind of first check is harder to come by from VCs. I think once they've made it, the actual second check can be quite hard as well for in, in terms of the mainstream, because if you if you haven't got those metrics to back you up and you're going into kind of that series A, I suppose what we're finding is a lot of companies, a lot of funds are going around particular deals. So kind of the round deals are, are swelling, but the number of deals are kind of falling and you're seeing kind of less deals happen. They're just looking for the ones that are breakouts rather than anything else. So you've really got to keep that momentum up if you do raise and you've got to really kind of go seed maybe see extension, but almost be looking at, okay, how do I drive that growth for that series A? Because it does come down to the kind of the metrics, especially in the SaaS world. And so you really got to be, okay, how, how can we kind of go aggressively on it? Or the only alternative is to look at, okay, how do I get to break even quickly enough and then build up when you master your own destiny? And I think if you can do that as well, Great, because it just gives you more optionality for that when do you raise that Series A. And we've got a couple of companies that we funded first check wise that have done that. And it's business model. It's getting paid 12 months in advance versus the usual monthly. And if you if you can do it that way around, you extend your runway, you create more options. So you've got a better, better option. Excellent. I want to just pick up on the on the US influx. Why do you see US investors heading more towards the UK? What's making the UK more attractive to those guys? I think they recognize that you can build a unicorn in Europe. You can build the, the big outcomes. I think often it takes a few companies to, to have the, the path and for other people to see what's possible to then go a bit further. And, you know, there's that four minute mile thing, isn't it? You know, as soon as someone's done it, then there's a huge load of people behind ready. And I think Europe has been three, four, five years, been producing them quite regularly. And I think Silicon Valley certainly have woken up to that and recognized okay, you can do it, let's, let's go over. I think it's also cheaper. I also think actually probably the venture capital landscape in the, in the UK is still slightly risk averse, even though it shouldn't be, you know, but 
it is, you know, to, to those to kind of early stuff. So I think they have a certain mindset and working with a few that they're, they're more akin to risk. So I think it's probably quite a good thing getting them on. But also there's a lot of talent in those areas of like AI and renewables, which are getting a lot of investment, a lot of focus. That just means that naturally they're a, that they're a good hub for it. And so, yeah, you're finding that. But I, th- I think actually the, the price differential is a factor. And now they, they are missing out on, on opportunities that they're establishing. What it is doing is probably raising the bar for the UK VC industry as well, which is good. Only really positive. Another thing you mentioned earlier was the role of AI. There's clearly been an absolute explosion of products popping up, some rendered obsolete by ChatGPT and the image detection almost instantly. Talk me through about how you guys see AI. Talk me through the kind of the thinking behind how you identify opportunities for SaaS products that are AI-based. And how do you determine the wheat from the chaff? How do you really determine which ones are the real potential winners here? Where we look at it, it's okay, how are you building, the, I suppose, the products on top of the AI? You know, it's, it's that whole business, you know, the usual thing with even with, with SaaS. Okay, how are you building that kind of market around your product? and getting to a point where you've got a bit of a flywheel. You know, I, I think we're not at a, a fund where we're building the, the operational layer of AI, where you, you're building a chat GPT and uh, an open AI, uh, a BARD or anything like that, because that's huge funds, huge amounts. But I think where it's really interesting is, okay, where can you go down those narrow niches that you've seen with, with kind of SaaS that actually don't become that narrow and don't become that niche, but they're a really good starting point that allows you to build on the, the layers that then open up doors for others. And I think it's probably the same with with AI. You know, you're looking at it from a point of view, okay, how can you focus in on a particular market where your data then becomes actually really entrenched and becomes more powerful because you've got those kind of networks already. And it's where you can build those kind of network effects with inside the data, with inside the AI, but also you create better products, you get more customers. And I think that's where we're seeing it personally ourselves is, okay, well, it's not AI for AI's sake, it's AI because actually that's the solution that builds out the actual overall business. We've invested in a few companies or, or I have in the space. It is interesting how much ChatGPT has kind of probably educated the market as well. So what you're finding is it's a lot easier to open some of the, the, the doors around the conversations. I suppose there's still that element of, okay, that fear of buy is lower, but there's still the old thing of, okay, how do you get someone over the line with a purchase? And what does that mean? And you're solving a problem for them. You're not going in and, and selling an AI product. You're, sol- you're still solving a problem. So it's that, okay, what is that? And how are you using AI? And it's not necessarily even that that they care about. It's that kind of thing. Okay, well, you know, how are you actually solving it for me and what price and what thing? It's the, it's the same. It's the same stuff. It's just packaged differently, I suppose. <laughs> You mentioned data, and this is an area that I feel quite strongly about this, the importance of having your own proprietary data. The AI models are there, they're accessible, they're easy to to modify. Is that how you see it then? Do you you think the real winners here are going to be those that have access to gated proprietary data that then they can use AI as as an overlay on that data to surface the insights from, from that data? Yeah, but it's, it's a really interesting point as well, because I mean, it's that proprietary side, isn't it? It's like, well, you might have access to it, but it might not even actually be yours. It's just that you can process it, improve your models, improve your kind of, yeah, I think ultimately improve your product. And I think that's where it's getting the right focus as well. So it's like, okay, how can you use it to improve the product for the customer and using their data and everyone else's? 
and you can do that, you know, with, with federated learning, et cetera, where you, you know, you don't actually store any of the data, but you just improve everything yourself. But having the access to it, you're right, is the key. And it's being able to understand, okay, in what markets do you have access that other people don't? And by selling in your product, you have access to that data, but because there are elements that you're doing or delivering, that means you have those insights, whereas a different customer or a different software product might not have that, or equally the hundred other SaaS products that they might actually use don't have that either. And I think it is interesting working out, okay, what is that uniqueness and how do you to utilize it? But equally, how do you package it in such a way that it's easy for them to consume and improve upon? It does come down to that. And equally, alongside with, with data, there's always that garbage in, garbage out scenario. And it's how do you make sure that if you allow your, your own kind of users to put in data or store it, like how are you making sure that that's accurate? We've had cases of that in the the portfolio, you know, with spin outs from, from good universities with, with models that have been built on data that maybe not necessarily have, uh, have shown the right stuff and we found those out the wrong wrong point at the wrong stage as well. So there's things that even the best people get wrong. So, so that's an interesting segue into another topic I wanted to focus on, which was we park AI for a second and think more broadly about some of the mistakes and pitfalls that, that founders make on the journey towards building their startup. In your experience, the companies that you've seen that you've worked with invested in what are some of the core mistakes that founders make and uh, i suppose any advice on how they can overcome those would be great too i think there's always that case of believing that you, you know you build a product people will kind of buy it and often you know spend probably a little bit too less time focusing on you know speaking to customers and, and really asking the questions you know there's that mum test book that, that's worth a read in terms of understanding okay how do you ask the questions to really get the answers versus what the answers that they kind of want to give you that are nice. So, you know, really drilling down to a point of understanding, okay, will they actually buy if you build, which still often the case, but then how do you sell into that market route to market question? There's, there's often not enough time spent around that and really thinking about, okay, how are we going to sell this and how are we going to be unique in selling and how does that scale? What does that look like when we've got 10 customers versus a hundred? But equally, just focusing on those first 10, what do they look like and how are they the same? How are we going to go and get back in? Often spending time really on that first part is kind of critical. And it? that crossing the chasm book is really good one for founders to read to understand, okay, how do you go after that early market and those early customers and just refining it down to a really small market size. And then I'd, I'd say other common mistake is probably around the founders it's quite common to lose founders early on and quite common to lose founders later. It can be quite hard to disentangle that if you haven't set up from day one with the right kind of legals in, in, in place. I think often VCs get a bad name for having things like bad lever, good lever in, but there's much to protect the founders and the company themselves that is the VC. And I think we've had companies fail because founders fall out and it's a common, you know, common occurrence. And I think where we can get those legals in place when that does happen can make it a bit easier. It's never easy to manage that, but it can make it a bit easier. So I think be careful about who you do found a company with and always, always have a CEO, always have one person that is making the decisions. Don't have it where you have a, a you know, a committee it just doesn't work. And it slows things down. It might be the wrong decision that the CEO makes, but at least it's a decision and it gets it going quickly. With startups, you've got to operate quickly. 
you've got to operate and have a, a feedback loop where you say yes or no, go with it, try it, test it, come back if it's not worked. And the ones that really do succeed aren't afraid to fail quick. It's the ones that kind of almost don't make a decision and just carry on. I think the other side that I've seen that is a common one is not focusing enough, both on the product and the customer side. So the product bloats and can be kind of uh, one thing to all people. And then often you kind of just go in from side to side. And then from the customer base side as well, you don't get that critical mass. So you might be selling one product into kind of, I don't know, one industry and another product into another. And you just, there's different needs, there's different reasons. And you just don't get that. The logos on the page aren't the same. And so when you go into another customer, it just doesn't doesn't feel right. Whereas if you've got three, four, five customers in one market, it's much easier. And you also get people talking about you in rooms that you're not there. And if you can get that going by just kind of creating that real focus then it can really help and accelerate those early doors. And then the only other side is hiring. Common mistake is either hiring into sales too early when you don't really know the market, the product well enough. I think founders, you've got to sell. And you know, is that founder-led sales kind of model? And then bringing in when you are trying to transition to that kind of sales-led at the right time. But equally, probably hiring Really, on the strength of a CV, you know, where it's kind of like a blue chip or it's a big corporate experience, huge. Whereas actually, when you're early, you kind of need talent. You need people who get stuck in, they're adaptable, that work hard. There's a good article around kind of hiring for the slope. It's like Y equals MX plus C and that kind of thing. Don't, don't hire for the C, hire for the M. Hire for the pace that someone learns versus what they're starting out in their experience. And I think that is a, that is a really good thing to think about when you make that first hire. Just hire someone who's talented, that's eager, that's hardworking. They'll grow with you. There's a real gold in there. I appreciate that. I had Chris Wixon, formerly of a crew on the podcast on a previous episode, talking about founder-led sales and that moment where you move from founder-led primarily to having hired somebody. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a challenge that a lot of founders face is when do they make that decision to take the leap, to take a step back? And what are some of the conditions that should be in place in order to reassure them that they're making the right choice at the right time? I think it's a real hard one to time, right? It's when you've got an idea of the actual playbook, you know, in terms of understanding, okay, how, how do you sell something? What do you sell it on? What's the compelling reason by it? And who are you selling it to? I suppose if you can answer those questions, then you've got an ability to probably hire into that area. It doesn't make it easier to do that. But I think for that person that comes in, they're going to be kind of almost going in and know what they're doing. I think where we've, always struggled is where you kind of get someone in and there's half an answer there they're the ones trying to find out and piece this together because they don't have the authority of a founder and they don't have the ability to go to the tech team and say we need to build this because this is what these five customers want they just don't have the the authority in the business you'll then get kind of drift on both sides and equally they might start they're not getting the traction in there they're kind of the market that we thought was there. So then they're going to go straight somewhere else. Whereas I think if you're that founder and you know that you've got enough critical mass in the customer base, you know there's the problem that you're solving for them. You know how to articulate it. You know how to, to sell it in at what price. It's much easier for them someone to actually just pick up and go, okay, I can do this. And I think that's where it, where you've got that repeatability in, in, the, in the sales and customer base. 
it makes it possible to do it. I think still think then it can be a challenge. You know, that sale, first sales hire, such a hard one to get right. And it does go back to the talent side, but it does, you know, things change, market conditions, pricing, et cetera. And there will be elements that just need observation. So there is that element of, of probably getting getting involved. I think in terms of the market side or, or how to kind of a, a approach that side of the question is probably just thinking through, okay, well, how could you hire someone potentially that is coachable? And that's one of the big things that Kev from uh, Refractor, I know, you know, is, is focused, oh, well, now at my sales coach and the whole business model around that, that's one area that he's always hired salespeople on is just that coachability and being able to know that you're not going to get it right every time. What's the feedback and how are you improving? And I think if you can kind of hire in that area and then you can kind of almost try and get processes around the sales as early as possible, then you can really start accelerating it because sales is a process. I'm a big believer in that it, that it is. It's very much based on you know the human element, but the underlying kind of process and the hard work. And if you can get that, the foundations led and bring someone in and then keep to it, then I think you're at a good good point to be able to then start thinking about scaling it. So one of the areas that links to that then is, is the role of marketing. Obviously, they have been worked with Refract and now with my sales coach and a couple of other portfolio companies. There's clearly founder-led sales moving into having a business development function. But how do you and, and Northstar view marketing and marketing function? What, what are some of the signals that you're looking for in a startup that the marketing function is working effectively? Getting good kind of strong leads when they are coming through the marketing that they're they're converting relatively quickly because I suppose in, inbound when you get them through they do convert much better and I think being able to have the kind of the, the case study is always much easier then to start looking at okay well what data and how have you gone through it and you can answer some of the questions that other buyers have on their journey and I think that's kind of probably the marketeer's role is being able to market the buyer's journey to the buyer and educate them in the process without them knowing that they're getting marketed to. And if someone lands in the sales process that's already had that education, then the marketing's working really well, I think, because they're ready to buy. I'm not saying that works every time and you might get people in different ones, but there's elements there that that's the holy grail, I suppose. Really where you can see the marketing early doors as well is just building that kind of presence, that brand, that element of we're here, we're, this is what we're doing, and that you're getting eyeballs on it. So often with investors, there can be an element of wanting something quickly out of marketing. And I think, especially in the kind of the, the B2B world, I don't think you can do stuff quickly with marketing. I think it's got to build and it's got to be about momentum and it's got to be kind of around this idea of it is a, a slow education of the customer base and it's got to take kind of six months. And so you're looking for indications and insights that it is working, but you've got to trust that you've got the team in place that, that know that as well and that, I don't think you can be kind of reliant on the on marketing necessary early doors to bring in that stuff, but you've got to be kind of noticed that if you get that engine working, it can be much better later down the line as well. And I think you've got to put the time and, and effort in around it. And I also think ever so more now as well, you've got the founders themselves have got to be part of that marketing side. I don't think it can necessarily just completely rely on a marketing function. They've got to be kind of almost marketeers in, the, in their presence, their, their profiles, their social side, to help bring in everything. Excellent. So with one eye on the time, an ultimate topic I wanted to just briefly touch on. There's a lot that we could talk about, but it's this growth versus profitability. 
the sort of the, the dichotomy that some people face between growth on the one hand, profitability on the other. How do you think about those two and, and what kind of advice do you give your founders on, on that balance? A year ago, 18 months ago, it was all about growth. You know, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not hitting growth numbers, then, you know, you're not going to raise the round. And I think VC money chased growth and was, was fueling it as well. You know, happy to make losses as long as you're growing. Happy to kind of could do that because it's all about market size and, and competing on that. I'd say, you know, obviously now is focused around probably profitability, but kind of unique economics, you know, almost ensuring that, you know, especially probably in the marketing funnel type arrangement that if you're spending 10 pounds you're going to make 12 or at least you know you're, you're doing something there where you can see that kind of roi and relatively quick payback for my side i always kind of work with founders and, and think okay if you get to break even or if you get to profitability at least you have optionality optionality about whether to raise or to kind of keep growing yourself and what that means is that you don't raise for the worst terms and it gives you an ability to ne negotiate as well and do it on, on your own terms and, and, and create more value with inside your your own business so i think and i've always been the, the case of it's not about growth for growth's sake for us we're more of a i suppose a capital efficient vc where we have been looking at because we are a, a smaller funder and we are in the kind of the northeast it's that kind of ability to how can you get this to a, to a point where you're you have the option to do venture capital, the next round, the bigger round, the bigger growth, or continue to grow until you get to that point where you can. For founders now, it is that focus on profitability, but it's all around, you know, getting the, the funnel right, the metrics right, and not expanding the team too big, too quick as well. It's making the, you know, the right choices at the right time. And I think with VC cash and investment, it is treating at that point of you only can only spend it once. Make sure you know you, you try and kind of spend it in, in in the right way, and if you can do it, whereby you don't increase your your burn too too great, and you have kind of six to twelve months runway at least, you know, at all times, then you've just got that ability to to turn the dial if you need to, or, or or turn it down as well, and it just gives you more more strength, more ability to make the right decisions if you are going down the profitability route, which I know is a strange thing for VC to say because it's usually just growth growth. growth. <laughs> so, final topic then. Just wanted to share, if you wouldn't mind, just a success story. I mean, people listen to the show, they're keen to find out, you know, insights from people like yourselves. But I think as well, it's important that we occasionally share success stories. And I know you've had a couple of success stories. Is there any in particular of a SaaS product that you'd like to share? One that we've been involved with that you know well, Matt, is uh, Refract. So we, we got involved with, with Kev and the team there back in kind of 2018. We didn't actually do the initial deep round on that one. We, we looked at it, but um, couldn't because of a bit of a conflict and then ended up because of a slight pivot in, in that business and the, the one before, we, we ended up being able to kind of look at it kind of seriously in 18 and rude for missing out the, the seeds. So I ended up kind of putting in quite a bit of money at that point and started, you know, and joined the, joined the journey. What that had was Kev had been around already at, at, at sold the business and also kind of I suppose, learned his, his trade at the, the Leighton Group, which kind of the Northeast is uh, another kind of SaaS, early SaaS producer of companies, really. So they've been a founder's factory in a way in terms of being able to produce other people and have, we're almost like the original company in, in region that have done it and have created a few off the back. But with, with Kev, you know, he had a, a team that's experienced doing a, uh, you know, scratching a niche that they had themselves. We're lucky to kind of join that journey and, you know, we exited that in December 2020, 
that was an interesting one because mid 2020, two of their biggest competition uh, in the US raised sizable rounds. So Chorus AI and Dong, I think. Dong. Yeah, not Dong. They raised 200, 300 million type rounds, you know, really aggressive growth. And we're sat as a UK company knowing that you know, to raise that now from UK VCs, just, they're just going to point to those two. It was a case of, okay, well, how, how do we do something? Kev being Kev had already been chatting to Alego about potentially partnering and, 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 and like, and they'd obviously been looking at that news. And, and that became, you know, over, over the course of six, 12 months, a perfect scenario for the founders to kind of join and, and kind of accelerate still their business and a, a good opportunity for us to then kind of I suppose, step off. And it was a good outcome for us, good outcome for the founders. Obviously, Kev's now left. Uh, Alego has now set up my sales coach, which we've funded twice so far and is, is growing really, really well. And, you know, we're really hopeful of, uh, of that one. It was a, it's a great success story, but equally there were challenges along the way and it's just adapting to them, you know, and, and navigating them through and understanding what the, what the strengths of the business were. The other one that you, that you know of, Matt, as well, just in terms of that B2B SaaS one that we're still on the journey of, but it's been a really interesting one for me to be involved in is, is ClickTFix as well. So they manage snagging lists on behalf of construction companies. So if you buy a new house, there can be at least, you know, 20 to 30 snags of kind of defects that need to be managed. That usually entails having someone come out, fix it. And sometimes what was happening, they were a spin out of a, a construction company themselves. And what they found is that some people were turning up, not having the right stuff to be able to fix the problem or not knowing exactly what it was. And it's, it simply became a bit of a tool to manage what was a a hard file that used to get passed around their office because no one wanted to really deal with it. And they, they made, you know, that whole thing. It wasn't even Excel into a software. It was a paper file into, into software. And then we're able to do things, you know, like taking pictures, writing notes, then having a partner portal and connecting with subcontractors and, and everything else. And it's really kind of grown from, I think when we invested, there were, there were four customers. One of them was the original kind of construction company. It's now kind of got about 200 in various walks of life. It's got the kind of housing associations, house builders, and also the subcontractors. And I think this is a really interesting one in that it's been able to create network effects from day one in that the business model they've gone with is that each house builder usually onboards subcontractors because they send them the jobs. So they go, okay, this is the defect that we need fixing, and we're going to send you a photo of it with the description, where the house is, et cetera. And then they've also got the house, the homeowner themselves get sent it and have, you know, ability to kind of track whether the man in the van is in terms of when they're going to arrive and stuff. And what that means is from the subcontractor point of view, that for every customer they bring on board, they've got another potential, you know, 20, 30, or even in some cases that I think they've now got something like 30 or 40,000 subcontractors now there. So they're, they're perfect prime people who've been exposed to ClickSyFix, use ClickSyFix, understand it. And it just means that kind of sales size is much easier because you've built in those network effects from day one. And I'd say for any founder in kind of B2B SaaS world now is thinking about, okay, how can you do that in the sales process and the marketing process as well? Like how can you get, you know, when you do sell in and you are able to get one person on board, how can they help leverage the next or the next two afterwards? And if you can do it, fantastic. And they have been on a journey and they're now at, you know, kind of 3 million kind of ARR growing. We'll have a really strong end of the year and really excited about kind of the next few years with Clixifix. I think they could really grow. 
And that was one initially as well that was kind of told around the market size being a challenge because there's only 200,000 houses. Well, if government ever meets their targets, it'll be a lot more, but realistically, it's about 160,000 houses get built a year. Market size then is um, you know double that. They stay in warranty for two years. But reality is you've got how many companies actually work on one house. You know, it's actually more like 10, 15. So that market size is much greater. But it's the type of stuff that unless you know the market, unless you really kind of analyze it, people just, you know, look at it and say, oh, it's too small. That's just obviously the UK, it's US, there's everything. I think they're one that's, that's grown. It's certainly from my side a, a success story in that they've really been able to capitalize on their initial their niche. So those are both great examples, Rick. Lots of commonalities between them, not least of all the fact that I've been involved in the marketing side for both of them. Refract headed up marketing there and Clixifix setting up marketing and also involved in my sales coach. But there's more commonalities than that. And I think one of the key ones is scratching your own itch, whatever the, the analogy that you want to use there. It's people who are deeply, deeply connected to the pain and the problem that they're trying to solve and then solving that in an elegant way that if it solves their needs then the, the natural inference then is that there will be other people like them in the market who will feel that pain and appreciate the way that they built the product in order to solve that pain for me it's, it's it goes back to the early days of SaaS where you had this core problem a person a founder had a core problem couldn't find a software solution for that problem built their own solution others then gravitated towards it it feels like those winners those success stories all share that really core theme between three Sadly, that was the moment that Rick's feed cut out and I lost the signal during my time at Sastock in Dublin. Wanted to say thank you very much to Rick for coming on the show. If you'd like to find out more about Rick, you can catch up with him at northstarventures, all one word, .co.uk. That's northstarventures.co.uk. Huge thanks to Rick for coming on the show and sharing his insights. I hope you enjoyed the episode, despite the technical issues, and I'll see you next time on On Demand. <laughs>